to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste. And the destination February 28, 1947. This is the 1947 Overture, a piece by the late Taiwanese composer Xiao Tai Ran. The day when modern Taiwan entered its darkest period. Despite early hopes for a new start after 50 years of Japanese rule, Taiwan's people found themselves under a new kind of oppression. Under the new nationalist government of the Republic of China, Taiwan faced problems like corruption and economic troubles, and Taiwan's people were marginalized. On February 28, 1947, Taiwan's anger boiled over. The government stalled for time until it could divert enough troops to Taiwan. What followed, once everything was ready, was a rampage that took in large swaths of the island and left a generation scarred. Today, these events are known by the date on which the protests started, February 28th, or simply 228. Yang Zhenlong, writer and executive director of the Memorial Foundation of 228, grew up in one family that the 228 massacre hit hard. Last week, he guided us through the events of 228 and told us of his family's private traumas. His grandfather disappeared for three months. His father was abducted three times and held for ransom. And one of his uncles was simply tied to a stone slab with two others and tossed into the sea. They'd done nothing wrong, but as teachers, doctors, and city councillors, they were the face of a local Taiwanese order the government hoped to crush. Though his grandfather and father both survived their ordeals, their experiences left huge, invisible wounds. In the dangerous political climate that followed the massacres, few dared to breathe a word about what had happened. Mr. Yang grew up in a post-228 world that had seemingly been wiped clean of the entire affair. He knew nothing of what had happened. Today he joins us again to tell us how he learned about Taiwan's unspeakable secret, and to offer his critiques of how the government is dealing with the trauma 70 years on. Growing up, there were a few odd details that didn't quite add up. Occasionally, he says, he would overhear an older person sighing about 228 and how awful it had been. But for him, this was puzzling. To him, after all, 228 was still only a number. He gathered that something terrible must have happened, but imagined it had only been a local affair, something bad that had only hit his hometown, the northern port city of Keelung. Then there was his grandmother. Every year in March, her mood would grow somber. She would gaze at a portrait of his uncle and begin sobbing. Mr. Yang had no idea how his uncle had died. He remembers his grandmother mumbling to herself, words he couldn't understand. With just these fragments to go on, the scale and severity of what had happened escaped him. The silence lasted over 40 years from the time the massacres died down. In 
In 1987, the period of martial law and political oppression that had shortly followed 228 came to an end. It was only then that talk of 228 began to shift into the open, and Mr. Yang first heard the story that had been kept from him all his life. The truth came out in 1989, when his father opened up, and now that it was safe, revealed what had been secret. Among the victims of this 228 massacre people were now discussing, there were three of Mr. Yang's family members. By then, a movement to rehabilitate victims and vindicate their memories was underway. It was in this movement that Mr. Yang began a lifelong journey to seek justice and stand up for other victims' families. At first, the work was difficult. In 1990, around the time Mr. Yang got involved, those who dared to talk about 228 openly were on the fringes. The taboo against remembering was still strong. Many victims' families he found voiced support for his work, but said they didn't want to come forward. He says it wasn't until the end of the 1990s that this concern for privacy began to change. The 30 years since the rehabilitation movement started have brought important progress in some areas. Now, Mr. Young says, the trauma is out in the open, and no one would dare reject calls for a full account of the truth behind 228. February 28th is a national holiday now, and there are memorials across Taiwan. There have been more concrete steps towards facing up to the past, too, including payments of compensation to victims' relatives. As Mr. Yang sees it, though, there are still serious problems with the official treatment of 228. A 2006 report published by Mr. Yang's foundation placed responsibility for 228 on the shoulders of Chiang Kai-shek, then chairman of the nationalist government and soon-to-be president. But 11 years later, Chiang is still remembered, in Mr. Yang's words, like a god, inside Taipei's Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall. To Mr. Yang, this is unacceptable. The report also lays out responsibility on a smaller scale, naming those responsible for violence and abuse and those who help them in the process. But he says that none of these names ever seem to appear at any 228 memorial. Mr. Young uses a phrase he often finds himself repeating, there are only ever victims, never perpetrators. An essential part of getting to the truth behind the massacre involves putting those names out there and acknowledging what they did. The goal is not to punish or take revenge, Mr. Young says. The vast majority of those involved are long gone anyway. But avoidance or whitewashing isn't justice. Mr. Yang says that the government has not made the 2006 report an official document, and this creates problems. Without official status, for instance, the report can't be quoted or used in textbooks, leaving the next generation to read only a general description of 228 in their classes. And, other issues aside, without official recognition for the report, how can the goal of transitional justice be achieved, he asks. 
In the days after this interview, the government announced a planned transformation of Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall, and headlines said that the president herself had spoken about the need to present 228's perpetrators as well as its victims. It seems there's a chance that some of the changes Mr. Yang has called for could be coming soon. There's still much more to be done, though. Mr. Yang believes that the way other countries have dealt with their own traumas offer lessons that can help Taiwan continue to make progress. South Korea, with its 1980 Gwangju uprising, is one example. There are also the examples of Germany and South Africa. Germany, he says, bravely faces up to its past, and he says that perpetrators of Nazi crimes are still being prosecuted, no matter how old they may be or how much time may have passed. He also looks to South Africa's post-apartheid truth and reconciliation process, which offers a confessional model that he says has an almost religious quality to it. One thing that's certain is that 70 years on, what was once Taiwan's unspeakable secret is now out in the open. This year, the massacre's 70th anniversary is being marked not just in Taiwan but worldwide. Taiwanese Americans have held a memorial ceremony in California. There's been an international 228 academic conference, and this year we'll also see the release of a new book about this dark chapter. It will be written in French. Hopefully, after so much pain, efforts like these, both local and international, will get more people to remember what happened and also bring some measure of healing. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time.